Hi, writers. Welcome to our new episode on writing fiction, both novels and short stories. This is Jim Thayer. I've mentioned writing dialogue before, but let me return to the subject to offer a list. I like lists. They help me keep things straight in my mind. Here are the three most important techniques I can think of regarding writing dialogue. First, argument is the best dialogue. It's the most interesting dialogue for the reader. For many of us writers, this is a hard concept that argument is best in fictional dialogue because in our real lives, arguments are upsetting and most of us try to avoid them. I intensely dislike arguing with people and in in fact, I never do. If, If I detect someone is trying to start an argument, it doesn't happen often. I smile and change the subject. Life is too short to argue with people. We can never change their minds, so what's the point? But that's not how fiction works. In fiction, arguments are the most interesting dialogue for the reader. Let me give an example. Here's dull dialogue for our story. Smith sat on the boat's thwart. Start the engine. We've got to get out of here. How do you start it? Jones said, ask, uh, leaning over the Johnson outboard. I don't see a key or a button. That slider on the side is the choke, Smith pointed. Pull it about halfway back. Okay, now what? Haven't you ever started an outboard motor before? Jones shook his head. Press that bulb a couple of times to shoot gas into the engine, then pull the cord. It won't start on the first pull, but on the third or fourth. And when that happens, push back the choke. I can't write any more of this. It's the most boring thing I'll contemplate all day. And and that includes, just a few minutes ago, the back of my box of cinnamon toast crunch. How about this instead? Start the engine. Smith sat on the boat's thwart. We've got to get out of here. How do you start it? Jones said, leaning over the Johnson outboard. I don't see a key or a button. Smith asked, didn't I just show you how to do that last week? Quit goofing around and start the engine. Jones found the starter rope handle. You bought this antique piece of junk and I told you to get a new mercury, but no. I didn't see you offering to help pay for a mercury, uh, Smith said. No starter, no fuel injections, Jones said. Weighs 30 pounds more than it should. Get out of the way, Smith said, rising from the thwart. It takes very little to change a boring conversation into a much more interesting argument. And why is it more interesting? Because Smith and Jones are arguing. Not all dialogue in our story should be argument, of course. There's room for affectionate and loving dialogue and maybe some melancholy, some wisecracking, some wistfulness. But still, argument is the most interesting dialogue, so we should work to make much of our fictional conversation arguments. Here's a second technique. Dialogue should sound like people talking, but not too much like people talking. Dialogue is a construct. 
Creating a construct means to make something by combining or arranging parts. By saying dialogue is a construct, I mean that we should include the heart of the sentence and leave out things such as pause fillers that almost all of us use when speaking. Uh, Pause fillers are words like um and er and uh. They're not words, they're they're sounds. Uh, They're called pause fillers. Uh, They are sounds or words that speakers use to fill in a pause or a hesitation in their speech. Uh, Well, as in, well, I think, and really, as in, really, this thing is bothering me, and like, as in, my dog, like, doesn't favor a leash. Other pause fillers are so, actually, I mean, you know, Basically, pause fillers are used to give the speaker in real life time to think of what she wants to say next or to indicate that the speaker is still speaking and so don't interrupt her. Our daily uh, real-life conversations are filled with these. The novelist David Morrell says, quote, Unfortunately, a transcription of even the best Oral storytelling proves that what sounds effective in casual, across-the-table settings is wordy and ill-focused on the page. That's David Morell. So our dialogue shouldn't sound like real people talking. It needs to be crafted. Here's our real-life conversation. Well, I don't think I should uh, give him the money. I don't, I don't think, you know, trust him. On our page in our story, it should be, I don't think I should give him the money. I don't trust him. And here's a third technique. Cut to the heart of the dialogue and leave out the rest. Dialogue in fiction shouldn't have the wind-up and wind-down that real-life conversations have. If our real-life conversations can be outlined as A, B, C, D, our dialogue in our story should be B, C, leaving out the A and the D. Here's a short example of a real-life conversation. Hi, Margaret. Where'd you get the coffee? At Shorty's, down the street a couple doors. I'll walk that way with you. Greg shook his head. I just got here from the doctor's office, and he told me to cut back on the caffeine. I'm going to last as long as I can without it. So where is Julie? At swim workout, Margaret said. I'll pick her up on the way home. We're going to stop at Papa Murphy's. They walked the few steps to Shorty's, then sat at a table on the sidewalk. Greg asked, Have you heard about the will? She grinned. The lawyer called me at work. I'm surprised. What'll we do? And we can have the dialogue here continue about the surprising will and discovering what's in the will. That's an important plot point and is worth talking about. The problem with this dialogue is the small talk that precedes the news about the will, about shorties and caffeine and the daughter Julie at the swim workout, about Papa Murphy's pizza. This is what in real life we'd probably talk about when a husband and wife meet outside a coffee shop. It's how life works. But fiction isn't about how life works. Small talk 
is often thought by new writers to show that the characters are, are human, just like readers. Small talk is, is meant to humanize them. But small talk, the little back and forths about nothing important, is a mistake in a novel. The reason is that it's boring. The reader should drop in on the conversation after the small talk is over. Uh, maybe the first sentence of the dialogue in uh, our conversation a minute ago would be, Greg asked, have you heard about the will? This same principle applies to ending dialogue. Uh, we should quit the dialogue before the goodbye small talk. Uh, let's scroll downward in our conversation about the will. Our dialogue in real life, uh, ending this important conversation, might be something like, Margaret smiled at him and said, The lawyer told me over the phone that Uncle Larry left us $250,000. Wow, Greg laughed. Let's take a vacation, a cruise maybe. Maybe we should put it in the bank, Margaret sipped her coffee. A cruise I was thinking about would cost $10,000. The Eastern Mediterranean from Barcelona. We'll take Julie, of course. Margaret laughed again. So let's put $240, $240,000 in the bank. Sounds good. I'll get the car and pick up Julie. See you tonight. <laughs> This is so boring, but this is how in, this is how conversation in real life might end. But it's in it's small talk wind down, and in our di dialogue in our story on the page, the conversation conversation probably should have ended at Margaret smiled at him and said, "The lawyer told me over the phone that Uncle Larry left us two hundred and fifty thousand dollars." End of conversation. So those are the three most important dialogue techniques I can think of. One, argument is the best dialogue. Two, dialogue is a construct and shouldn't sound exactly like people talk in real life. And three, cut to the chase in the dialogue, as if the reader is dropping in on an important talk without the small talk. I received a message from one of our listeners. He said, first-person characters always seem full of life and personality. How can I give that to my third-person main character? What a great question. Let me give it a shot. An advantage of first-person is that the narrator is talking to the reader. Uh, the main advantage of writing in the first person is that it instantly involves the reader because it's intimate. The character is confiding to the reader. Few things endear a person to another as the willingness to confide. That person trusts us enough to let us in on her life. Here are examples of novels written in the first person, a couple sentences. Here is uh, David Copperfield. Uh, David Copperfield is speaking in Charles Dickens' novel, David Copperfield, the remarkably beautiful first lines of the novel. Whether I shall turn out to be the hero of my own life, or whether that station will be held by anybody else, these pages must show. To begin my life with the beginning of my life. That is poetry 
on the page. With these few words in the first person at the very beginning of the novel, the reader has already begun to like the narrator, who is lyrical and funny to begin my life with the beginning of my life. And here are the opening sentences of The, of the Great Gatsby. In my younger and more vulnerable years, my father gave me some advice that I've been turning over in my mind ever since. Whenever you feel like criticizing anyone, he told me, just remember that all the people in this world haven't had the advantages that you've had. He didn't see any, say any more, but we've always been unusually communicative in a reserved way, and I understood that he meant a great deal more than that. In consequence, I'm inclined to reserve all judgments, a habit that has opened many curious natures to me and also made me the victim of not a few veteran bores. Here the reader senses the narrator is kind, sensitive, is sharp, and we've already started to like him. It turns out the narrator, Nick Carraway, his judgment isn't always as sound as sound as it should be, but the reader likes him. As you know, a third-person story is told by a narrator who is not a character in the story. Uh, the narrator refers to characters by their names or by he, she, or they. The story is told by the writer rather than by a character the writer has created. Here's an exam example from J.R.R. Tolkien in The Lord of the Rings, uh, part one titled The Fellowship of the Ring. Inside Bag End, Bilbo and Gandalf were sitting at the open window of a small room looking out west onto the garden. The late afternoon was bright and peaceful. The flowers glowed red and golden, snapdragons and sunflowers and nasturtiums trailing all over the turf walls and peeping in at the round windows. How bright your garden looks, said Gandalf. Yes, said Bilbo, I am very fond indeed of it, and of all the dear old shire, but I think I need a holiday. You mean to go on with your plan then? I do. I made up my mind months ago, and I haven't changed it. Here the narrator is telling the story, not a character. It's written in the third person. Are there ways to make the third person as intimate as first person? Can the reader get the close and confidential experience of a first person story in a third person story? Sure. Here's how. Uh, first, we, we can use thought tags. You've heard me talk about dialogue tags, as in, where's the dog she asked? where she asked is a dialogue tag, and I see the dog, she said, where she said is a dialogue tag. There are also thought tags. Where's the dog, she wondered, and there he is, she thought. So in this partial scene, in this partial scene, even though it's written in the third person, the reader feels close to the character Brooke. Jessica lugged her daughter's suitcase along the walkway to the car trunk. You have your anvil collection in here, Brooke. Some books. Won't you have enough books in your dorm room, Jessica asked, without taking these? 
Brooke looked at her mother and thought, she's about ready to cry. Brooke helped lift the suitcase into the trunk. She knew her dad was sort of hiding. She was off to the university for her freshman year, and it was her father's alma mater, and he'd been emotional about it this past month, often looking away from her while he collected himself, she knew. She considered going back into the house to find him. He was at a window, she suspected. She'd find him and give him the longest hug ever. Here, thought tags, which are she thought and she knew, let the reader enter Brooke's mind. The reader feels close to her because we've been invited inside her mind and we see her dealing with her family's emotions about leaving for college with thought tags. But, and here's a strong technique, often thought tags aren't needed and the writer can slip into first-person, first-person mode, visiting the character's mind even in a third-person novel. Character in a third-person novel can speak to the reader. Jessica loved, uh, lugged her daughter's suitcase along the walkway to the car trunk. You have your anvil collection in here, Brooke? Some books. Won't you have enough books in your dorm room, Jessica asked, without taking these? Brooke looked at her mother. She's about ready to cry. Brooke helped lift the suitcase into the trunk. Her dad was sort of hiding. She was off to the university for her freshman year, and it was her father's alma mater, and he'd been emotional about it this past month, often looking away from her while he collected himself. I'm going back into the house to find him. He's probably at a window. I'll give him the longest hug ever. See how even though this story is written in the third person, uh, Brooke is the protagonist, the main character, and the story refers to her by name in the third person, such as Brooke looked at her mother. For a few sentences, the narrative slips to first person. I'm going back into the house to find him, and I'll find him and give him the longest hug ever. But it's okay, because the reader knows what's going on, that the reader has jumped into her mind, that the writer has skipped thought tags, allowing the reader to directly visit her thoughts, as in a first-person narrative. Here's another example. Donner lay in the dirt, a bank of tumbleweeds hiding him. He'd spotted the gunman behind mesquite trees a hundred yards away. The mesquite was... Behind the mesquite was a long, dry wash, and the gunman could have slipped down there. He touched the crease on his shoulder where the bullet had passed. Hurts like crazy, but I'll live. I've got to back away from these weeds. He rose to his knees and crawled backwards, wincing from the pain. Dried stems crackled under his palms and knees. Where's cover? Back to the shack. Hope the gunman doesn't figure out my route. Here, the reader in a third-person story, and we know it's a third-person story with sentences such as Donner lay in the dirt. The reader can ad abruptly hear Donner think. It's a third-person to first-person switch for a couple of sentences. It's magic, and it, and it works. The reader isn't going to say, wait a minute, isn't this a third-person story? What's going on with hearing Donner's thoughts? And the reader did hear Donner's thoughts with, Hurts like crazy, but I'll live. 
I've got to get back away from these weeds. And the reader hears him think, where's cover? Back to the shack. Hope the gunman doesn't figure out my route. The reader will just go along with it. And there's another way to get the reader close to a third-person character. Show, rather than tell, what the character is thinking. Martha laughed. Of course, indicates she thinks something is funny. Martha rolled her eyes. Martha winced. Martha shook her head. Martha blew out her cheeks and turned away. Martha rubbed his neck. All of these things visit Martha's mind without visiting her mind because they show what she's thinking. So there are ways to make a third-person story as intimate as a first-person story. The protagonist confiding to the reader. You can make the reader the confidant of a third-person story's hero with thought tags such as she wondered and she thought. Or sometimes you can just switch to the first person for a couple of sentences to enter the character's mind. Or you can show what she's thinking. Martha winced, shows that she's troubled or in pain. I'm fascinated by how writers work. Mason Curry, in his book, Daily Rituals, sets out Mark Twain's work routine. This is Mason Curry. In the 1870s and 80s, the Twain family spent their summers at Quarry Farm in New York, about 200 miles west of their Hartford, Connecticut home. Twain found those summers the most productive time for his literary work, especially after 1874, when the farm owners built him a small private study on the property. That same summer, Twain began writing The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. His routine was simple. He would go to the study in the morning after a hearty breakfast and stay there until dinner at about five. Since he skipped lunch, And since his family would not venture near the study, they would blow a horn if they needed him, he could usually work uninterruptedly for several hours. Quote, On hot days, he wrote to a friend, I spread the study wide open, anchor my papers down with brickbats, and write in the middle of the hurricane, clothes in the same thin linen we make shirts of. Mason Curry continues in his book, daily rituals. After dinner, Twain would read his day's work to the assembled family. He liked to have an audience, and his evening performances always, almost always won their approval. On Sundays, Twain skipped work to relax with his wife and children, read and daydream in some shady spot on the farm. Whether or not he was working, he smoked cigars constantly, One of his closest friends, the writer William Dean Howells, recalled that after a visit from Twain, quote, the whole house had to be aired, for he smoked all over it from breakfast until bedtime. Howells also records, uh, this, this is Howells quoted by Mason Curry, in those days he was troubled with sleeplessness, or rather with reluctant sleepiness, and he had various specifics for promoting it. At first, it had been champagne just before going to bed, and we provided that. But later, he appeared, he appeared from Boston with four bottles of lager beer under his arms, 
Lager beer, he said now, was the only thing to make you go to sleep, and we provided that. Still later, on a visit I paid him at Hartford, I learned that hot scotch was the only soporific worth considering. And Scotch whiskey, daily, uh, duly, found its place on our sideboard. One day, very long afterward, I asked him if he were still taking hot scotch to make him sleep. He said he was not taking anything. For a while, he had found going to bed on the bathroom floor a soporific. Then one night, he went to rest in his own bed at 10 o'clock, and he had gone promptly to sleep without anything. He had done the like with the like effect ever since. Of course, it amused him. There were few exceptions. Uh, uh, there were few experiences of life, grave or gay, which did not amuse him, even when they wronged him. That's from Mason Curry's terrific book about how creators work. The book is titled Daily Rituals. My wife, Patty, and I have visited Mark Twain's home in Hartford, Connecticut. It's now a museum. Twain lived there with his family from 1874 until 1891, and he wrote many of his novels there, including The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. We saw the desk where he wrote Tom Sawyer, and my thought is that his desk is a shrine to literature. Mark Twain stayed at his desk until 5 o'clock, but not me today. I'm quitting right now. I'm glad you were along for this episode. If you'd like to send me a message, my address is jimthayerseattle at gmail.com. Hope to see you next time. This is Jim Thayer. Please keep tapping those keys. <laughs>